0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees.
1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me this week, Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Good to see you guys. Howdy. Hey, Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street, and as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar, but earnings season is heating up, so let's get right to it. We're going to start with Intel. Second quarter profits and revenue both came in higher than expected, but that was completely overshadowed by Intel's guidance for the third quarter. Not only was it lower than Wall Street was expecting, but Intel announced delays to their next generation of chips aimed at competing with AMD. Shares of Intel down 15% on Friday. Jason, it's the biggest drop after earnings in nearly 20 years. Do you look at this and think that's an overreaction, or is Intel really behind the eight ball on this one? So, Chris,
0: you know I, I do a lot of digging into this space with the work I'm doing on um, on 5G and our 5G service, and, and I my initial reaction is that no, this is not an overreaction. Actually, I mean, there's no denying the success that Intel has had to date, but you know, management has noted this more than once that the business they are in this. They're in the middle of this transition. Intel has always been a PC-based company. They really weren't ever real, a mobile company, so to speak, right? So they kind of missed that that uh, that gold rush, so to speak. But but it's going from a PC-based company to a data-centric company, and and that's presenting its fair share of challenges. Now I don't necessarily think that's the wrong decision. Um, I mean, when when you look at the role data plays in our lives, now I mean that makes sense in data-centric. Uh, revenue now accounts for about half of the company's overall revenue, so that's cloud and network infrastructure spending. I mean, that's driving essentially seventy percent of the revenue. But this delay in the seven nanometer technology that's pushing their results out further—that was the news in the call. That I think the market—I mean, I understand why the market's receiving that the way it is. I mean. This is a company trying to make a pivot. Obviously, some key technology in a very meaningful part of the business in its PC commercial PC business. It, those, those results are getting pushed out. That's gonna that's gonna hold that's gonna hold revenue growth back. Clearly, it's gonna hold revenue. It's gonna hold uh, earnings growth back. I mean, this is a big business. Really good at bringing things the things down the bottom line. Uh, obviously, an R and D machine. Two point two percent dividend yield. Lots of things to like about it. But uh, I you know, they they really have to kind of prove themselves here. The burden of proof is on them at this point.
2: Yeah, yeah, Chris, the stock has actually look over the last few years, it's actually done okay. You had that little dividend in, beaten the Nasdaq. Over the last ten years though, has not has really trailed the 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 wider Nasdaq. Um, tech market. So, you know, $255 billion market cap. Jason said a little bit of a yield, nice little grow, not that expensive. You know, probably going to be an okay holding for those who are looking for more stability in their portfolio. They're not really going after the the rocket ship growth. Like I said, the stock's done pretty well, had a nice rebound this year. So, you know, but just more of a steady business. But clearly, there's some concerns about some of the growth angles.
1: Shares of Microsoft flat this week, despite fourth quarter revenue coming in north of $38 billion. Great way to wrap up the fiscal year, Andy. The cloud division continues to deliver, and Microsoft's gaming division had a really great quarter.
2: Yeah, those are really the highlights, Chris. You look at the big winners on gaming with Xbox and their cloud, the Azure business, um, growing forty-seven percent. That's actually a little bit of a deceleration though of the last few quarters and over last year. I, I think there's some concerns in there. The stock sold off in, uh, after the earnings um, this week, um, but like you said, revenues up thirteen percent, thirty-eight billion. That was much higher than management guidance at thirty-six point eight billion. Operating income up eight percent as they continue to kind of manage with some of their costs. Part of that cost. Is they're closing those 80 stores we talked about before on the show. Uh, that's a $450 million hit with part of that coming in, in the second quarter. Um, so the, the, the segments, when you kind of break through the quarter of the segments, Chris, it's really interesting with productivity and business processing up 6%. Um, LinkedIn up 10%. Uh, Dynamics and cloud up 13%. Their Dynamics 365 business, which is like CRM and planning tools, was up 38%. And like you said, really, their intelligence Cloud, the Azure business continues to show more and more growth, really benefiting from the work-from-home, remote workplace with Teams and the like um, for Microsoft, and that's driving most of their growth along with the gaming, which was just gigantic. I think it was up 65%. Uh, Their Xbox sales were up 65% for the quarter. Uh,
1: Yeah. And Teams got a little added uh, bonus publicity this week when Slack uh, filed a lawsuit in, uh, in the EU Um, I guess Slack is now admitting that Microsoft Teams is actually a competitor.
2: Yeah, it sure is. I mean, they, I think they've been pretty much on that train for the past, really since they went public maybe a year ago with Stuart Butterfield kind of being a little bit cheeky with some of the com- competitive with Teams, but concerns around antitrust there from from their perspective that is tied, so Teams is so closely tied into the office business. Reminds me a little bit of what we saw with the antitrust uh, fights in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, with at that, at that time, it was the browser wars tied into the dominance of, of Windows OEM. So, um, so the, yeah, that's something we'll have to watch, but it's probably it's more impactful for for slack than, than 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 microsoft. The worry with microsoft the one kind of weakness we saw was continued on the advertising front. Their advertising business was down 18% and that's a trend that they expect to continue this year.
0: I wonder what the management team at Zoom thinks about this slack uh, yeah. legal filing. Like, you know, it I I Zoom and Slack obviously different businesses but certainly dealing with the same competitive forces from a company like Microsoft. And yet it really does seem like Zoom has been able to gain a lot of traction through this pandemic, whereas Slack, they're having to do a little bit more convincing, perhaps, as to why they're a more compelling solution. I guess it's
2: interesting. And in the in the retort, Microsoft had for Slack, it was that they they lack a very robust video conferencing tool like Teams is. By the way, Teams now can show forty nine users at one time. and used to not be able to do that. I think that's what what Zoom can do. So they can they clearly are going into the space for the remote workface space also with schools and it's not just companies, it's with organizations and schools is an important market for Microsoft.
0: And Slack doing that video, it's not for lack of trying. They certainly did try it for whatever reason, they just failed at it. Yeah.
1: Last week, we led the show with Twitter being hacked. This week was better though. Shares of Twitter (laughs) up thanks to a second quarter report featuring a nice jump in daily active users. And Jason, I feel like we say this every time Twitter has a surprisingly good quarter. They need to prove they can do this two, three, four quarters in a row.
0: Yeah, yeah, Chris, you know that that gif of Larry David from Carb Your Enthusiasm, where he, he's just kind of sitting there. He's like, eh, I don't know, maybe so, maybe not. He's sort of you know deliberating in his own mind. I mean, to me, that's I, that's what Twitter is to me at this point. I feel like it's that it's that where I I see the good, I see the bad. It's just. I don't really know what fully to make of it at this point. I mean, The biggest question to me remains, and it's a shame that it still does for as long as they've been public, what is next? They need to do something to take this network to the next level, because right now, they just are not doing it. Uh, Monetizable daily active users grew 34% to 186 million, that's terrific. That's six consecutive quarters of very robust double-digit growth there, but yet, Revenue fell 19%. Now, I mean, we understand why revenue fell. Clearly, it's a challenge to add market. But, you know, companies out there are still growing. I mean, Snap recorded uh, revenue growth for the quarter. Uh, so, it, to me, it just keeps feeling like they're just not doing anything to take the business to the next level. And, and you know, I told you a while back, I mean, I, I I cut ties with the investment. I mean, you know, it just because that was what I was seeing. And I, I don't know that we saw anything in this quarter that leads me to believe they're on the cusp of anything new. I mean, there were rumors of subscription and whatnot, but that word was mentioned three times in the call, right? They, they, there's, no, there's no plan there, it's just a seedling of an idea. Uh, so, still, you know, a good quarter, Still, still big questions to answer.
1: Shares of Intuitive Surgical hitting an all-time high this week after second quarter profits more than doubled the expectations of Wall Street analysts. You tell me, Andy, is this a sign that the worst is over for Intuitive Surgical and uh, the path is clear, or was this kind of a situation where, look, accurate forecasting is tougher than ever because of the pandemic?
2: Yeah, I think a little bit of both. So, uh, Intuitive Surgical makes the Da Vinci robotic uh, robotic uh, surgery systems, minimally invasive for urology, thoracic, and uh, gynecology, among other things. Sales down twenty two percent. Instrument and accessory sales down twenty percent. That's about a little more than half their sales. And system sales down twenty four percent. Da Vinci procedures were down 19% Chris so there a lot of talk in the release and the call and they talked about this for the, for the year really about just as as hospital centers and and surgical procedures that are not required um, have fallen off and there were a lot more focus obviously going into um, to fighting the COVID-19 pandemic and and treating that um that disease. Uh, We're just not doing nearly as many surgeries as as they used to. So that has really impacted overall um, for the year for Intuitive Surgical. But we are starting to see a little bit of that slowdown. Across the world, they're starting to see different geographies improve faster than what we have seen in the US. So I think investors are saying, wow, this is the leader in this space. Minimally invasive robotic surgery is going to be the growth. It is is going to be the way that surgeries are proceed are performed around the world. When you look out the next five, ten years, Da Vinci and Intuitive Surgical and their innovations continue to lead the space. So, as this situation really starts to normalize over, hopefully, over the next you know um, year or two, uh, the procedures will come back and Da Vinci will be the leader in that space.
1: On last week's show, the stock on Andy's radar was Boston Beer. This week, that stock was up 25%. What happened? We'll tell you next, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Shares of Boston beer up 25% after second quarter profits and revenue came in much higher than expected. Andy Cross, how much Sam Adams are people drinking during this pandemic?
2: Well, actually, Chris, not very much Sam Adams. It's uh, maybe of the company, but it's really truly seltzer and twisted tea with a little bit of dogfish that are driving the bulk of volumes. As you said, it was a really impressive quarter compared to, I think, what we were expecting. It was much higher than what I was just expecting. Sales up 42%. Neck income more than doubled. Depletion, which is the sales from distributors to retailers, was up 46% for the quarter. Chris, shipments just of their um, of their alcohol. Sam Adams' shipments were up 40%. So earnings per share really had a, a, a monster quarter. Hard seltzer, Twisted Tea, and a little bit of Dogfish, which they acquired a few years ago, coming online. Uh, you just look at what Boston Beer is doing. They've really tried to manage their cost structure. Taking care of their employees at the brewery is a big focus. But clearly, that brand, the Twisted Tea, Truly Seltzer brands, um, I think uh, uh, Jim koku who founded, owns more than 20% of the – of the stock had mentioned that Truly Seltzer is one of the only seltzer brands that was not introduced this year that is taking market share. Incidentally, Chris, they also are taking a little bit of market share, it seems, from the wine and spirits category of anywhere. So, for those of us who like our spirits, uh, Truly Seltzer taking a little bit of share. Very impressive quarter, and the guidance that they had, which which they withdrew, they kind of brought it back for on the earnings per share growth, but also on the depletions growth for 35%. So, it looks really impressive uh, from Boston Beer.
1: Digital sales for Chipotle rose more than 200% in the second quarter, but shares falling a little bit this week, Jason. Um, that's an amazing number, but it still wasn't enough to make up for the fact that restaurants are closed.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, just a handful of of their stores are are still closed, which is good for them. Um, I mean, I think all things considered, yeah, I, I thought this was a really impressive quarter. I mean, I think we're going to look back five years from now, and we're going to see a Chipotle that is a lot bigger. Uh, even more mobile, and quite possibly Chris has even, you know, better Queso than they do today. Which, I I know, it it feels like there's only room for them to go up in that regard. So, so maybe they make some investments on that front and, and really surprise us. But I, I I think at the end of the day, it's still a good stock to own. I mean, I, you look at some of these numbers, like revenue revenue is only down close to 5%. I mean, that's $1.4 billion still. I mean, comp's down close to 10%. That's understandable, given everything that's going going on in the market. But, but they are back up almost fully operational. They're investing a lot in those Chipotle lanes. So, I think that as time goes on, they're going to ultimately make it easier for the consumer to get their product, which is what a lot of successful e-commerce companies have done, obviously. Uh, so, so, I mean, I think that, you, you know, when you focus on making sure that you can get your product to your, to your consumer uh, in virtually any way possible, making it easy, and you have good food, then people tend to come back. I mean, they're really investing a lot in delivery. Uh, and, and honestly, when you look at it, they're still talking about doubling the store base and, and getting to that point with average unit volumes of, of $2.5 million per year. Now, if you do the math there, you're talking about 12 to $13 billion in sales annually for, for this company, which is more than double what it's doing now. Now, I'm not saying they'll fully get there, but I'm saying they've got they've got a reasonable shot of getting close. And if you believe that, that that is the case, then you can certainly still see uh, room for this stock to, to perform well in the
1: coming years. Shares of Tesla down a bit this week, despite the fact that the company reported a profit for the fourth quarter in a row. Andy, what's your headline for Tesla this week? (laughs)
2: Yeah, some of the news on the production side we kind of knew because they had given a little bit of an update. A couple big kind of strategic pieces of news they announced that uh, they're going to build the next gigafactory in uh, outside Austin, near Austin. It'll be on two thousand acres. Chris and employ more than five thousand people. Will be an ecological paradise, as uh, Elon Musk um, calls it. People will be able to visit that area, and I don't think necessarily inside the factory, although who knows around that area. It'll be for the Cybertruck and the semi, uh, Model Three and Model Y for the Eastern United States, and then California will continue to do Model S and X, and then Model 3 and Y for the Western U.S. Um, So, obviously, a lot of excitement from the Tesla side to be able to invest in that business. It actually was a a pretty good quarter when you look at the numbers. They still get a lot of that money from the regulatory credits, and that helped their profitability. So, some concerns on watching about what that growth may look like, but. The stock has done just phenomenally. I think it's up more than 500% over the past year and a lot of excitement around Tesla and the innovations and the investments they're making to continue that growth uh, projection going forward.
1: And Musk maintaining they're going to hit that uh, delivery goal by the end of the year.
2: Yeah, it's still the goal. They, uh, you know, they 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 shut down the California factory for a good chunk of the quarter, so it's even all that much more impressive. Um, I think they may have been a little bit cagey on that five hundred thousand target, but still going there. And you know, given the results recently, you can't put it past them.
1: Coca-Cola's second quarter report featured the biggest drop in revenue in twenty-five years, but shares a big red, actually up this week on comments from CEO James Quincy. Jason. He says the worst is in the rear view mirror. What do you think?
0: Well, that's the hope. I mean I, I whether that actually is the case or not remains to be seen. I don't think we're gonna get quite back to the same level. Of, of economic shutdown that we had before. So, maybe he's right there. Um, that, this has been a bad stock to own over the last five years, and I certainly understand why. It's got 400 master brands, less than 50% of, the, of those are global, regional, and the local brands that are actually responsible for 98% of the company's total revenue. They rely on some serious, serious brand power there. And what's made them so successful, just beyond the massive distribution network, their core product, it's, it's starting to turn against them, even just a little bit. Unit case volume down. Uh, marketing, it, there's going to be some more marketing spent here in the back half of the year, so that could certainly weigh down results if if they do run into some headwinds. Um, I, you know, I just, I'm not, I'm not fully compelled by this business. I get it, I understand it, but it, but it certainly seems like it's a, it's a different day, and soda just doesn't hold the same status.
1: It is interesting to see though when you compare Coca-Cola and Boston Beer. Uh, You know, we don't have live sporting events. I mean, we're we're starting to get it, but we can't go to them. Um, That appears not to have really hurt Boston Beer over the last quarter. It's still hurting Coca-Cola. Well,
0: yeah, and, I mean, there's, you know, that that false sense of security and happiness that you get from drinking more and more of Boston Beer's products versus something (laughs) like a Coca-Cola. So that probably has something to do with it. But, yeah, I mean, again, Boston Beer, great example. Their core product in Samuel Adams has started to turn against them. The success of that business really has been primarily due to what they've been able to do in seltzer in in expanding the portfolio. So always, always good to remember.
1: All right, Andy Cross, Jason Moser, guys. We'll see you later in the show. One of the best performing stocks over the last five years is Mercado Libre. Up next, we will go inside the company with one of their executives. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. B W E W R U N, beer run. B W E
3: W R U N, beer run. All we need is a ten and a fiber. a and a key and a
1: sober driver. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. From time to time on this show, you've heard us talk about Mikado Libre, the e commerce business based in Latin America. It's nearly a $50 billion company, and over the past five years, the stock is up more than 600%. Earlier this month, Motley Fool co founder David Gardner and Motley Fool contributor Danny Vena got the chance to talk with Mikado Libre's head of investor relations, Federico Sandler. They discussed Mercado Libre's total addressable market, how the company is dealing with COVID-19, and Federico started with an overview of the business.
4: Mercado Libre is the largest e-commerce uh, and 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 payments ecosystem in Latin America. The way for the audience to think about it, it would be equivalent to what eBay, PayPal, Amazon, and Square put together are in the region. So we've started as a more like Craigslist dash eBay-ish type of flavor. But over time, um, not only we've evolved to to, to more professional sellers on our marketplace, although most of what we sell is not owned by us. And then we have a a payments ecosystem where not only we process payments online for merchants away from our marketplace, just like PayPal does online off off of eBay, but also we have begun to venture in processing payments in the physical world where we've seen a void a significant void, I would say, in terms of the services that banks offer. So it's not only about payments, but we've identified opportunities around essentially generating financial inclusion and digitalizing cash. So, so two very big opportunities that are highly synergistical among themselves.
3: That's wonderful. And Federico, since I love superheroes and superhero origin stories, I love hearing where things came from. Can you tell the story a little bit of Marcos Galbarin and how he started the company, and just a little bit of his background?
4: Yeah. Uh, so, so Marcos, uh, who is who is the founder, along with with with, with a few other co-founders, um, moved to stat to went to Stanford to do his MBA. He usually, he used to work at a, at a at a large oil company in Argentina, the largest national oil company doing trading of um, oil futures. And uh, when he went to Stanford to do his MBA he realized um, how much eBay was growing at the time, and he decided to do, uh, as part of his business plan, uh, try to replicate, if you will, um, you know, an e-commerce business that looked like PayPal with a few other flavors. So the, the logistics piece was already in the cards and the payments piece was already in the cards. Um, and, and interestingly enough, um, when he started to do, when he did a survey around his students, asking him what were their thoughts about building a commerce business in Latin in America, they all thought he was crazy, um, that it would never work because of the payments, because of the logistics, because of the trust. But interestingly enough, um, he actually uh, met, um, uh, I, th- I believe it was Mr. John Muse, who is a very prominent finance person in the, in the US, and, uh, and essentially, he came to one of the classes, and he basically offered himself to take him to the airport. And he purposely took the long road so he could actually pitch him on Mercado Libre. And on the way to the airport, is that he sort of got his essentially the the, the seed financing for the business, which then in turn opened other doors for 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 other investors in the early days before uh, we went public. But um, after Stanford, Marcos moved to Argentina. Um, he met other people in Stanford who are actually in the company today, like Stelio Tolda, who uh, manages our Brazilian business and is our chief operating officer. And we started to expand into Latin America very quickly. Um, And then um, as we continue to make seed financing rounds, we ended up um, actually with an offer from eBay, which we uh, did not take, and then we ended up going public in 2007, and then the rest uh, is history. It's really a, a remarkable story, starting literally from a garage, which we can actually see the building um, from our offices uh, where Mercado Libre was founded.
3: And you know, when I think in part about the story, your own background, Marcos's background, I think about Argentina. Argentina does not strike me from my position here in the United States as the best economy that you could be operating out of. It seems as if it's a country that has a lot of problems with public debt and foreign debt. Um, It doesn't look like a shining example of capitalism to me. And yet um, you have managed being based in Argentina. You have managed to expand throughout the continent and, uh, and weather some, some political strife here and there. Um, Federico, what is it like to run the company from Argentina? What are your views on your country and the rest of the continent? Yeah, so I think, so I think, first of all, I think
4: operating in the region like ours, we believe is a competitive advantage and a differentiating factor. Uh, Latin America is not only diverse from a geographical standpoint, but our There are nuances that are inherent to the region. Each country has its own sets of regulations, integrations with banks, logistical challenges, um, obviously um, dealing with crisis. Um, We went through the tech bubble, the financial crisis, the Argentinian crisis, the Brazilian crisis, and now COVID. And I think that because we have seasoned management with experience in the region, A, and B, because we have a business that is, for the most part, pretty flexible in terms of our cost structure, we can adapt, we're agile. Um, We have been able to... Very successfully um, weather many of the storms, I would even argue that because we had to actually build all the rails on payments and on logistics, we put up, we probably didn't grow as much as other players did like in Asia. but I think now that we 've actually built the rails and have the user experience where we needed to be, we believe now it's the time that we're going to start to grow very, very fast, and, and, and COVID just has accelerated this. But I think one of the reasons why we've been more successful than most is because we have seasoned management, because we are responsible allocators of capital, and because I think operating in Latin America is unique and, and not for everyone.
3: Uh, Federico, well, you know, one of the things that, that comes to mind, uh, based on what you were saying, is can you talk a little bit about how uh, Mercado Libre's management approached uh, this, this COVID-19 pandemic, obviously, this is an unprecedented time in, in world history. Uh, and very many businesses are, are finding this extremely challenging. So can you talk a little bit about Mercado Libre's approach to dealing with this pandemic?
4: Yeah. So, so, so I think first of all, we're very fortunate to be in an industry and business that really we haven't had to change our overall strategy. So the two major goals for our CEO is to win e-commerce and to become the fintech leader. Unfortunately, because of the crisis, that hasn't really changed. There's been some changes on on um, category focus, perhaps, but really the the the, the, the underarching investment thesis about retail penetration and underbanked, unbanked is is still there. But specifically to COVID, I think A, we moved very fast to guarantee business continuity of our managed network, given that we have government relations team across the region, and we have been deemed an an essential business in most of the regions that we operate. So in spite of the lockdowns, we were well prepared in the sense that not only we have a logistics network, but because we actually moved quickly with governments, we were actually allowed to operate. And the genesis of this was also because we're fortunate to have a board member that sits in Asia who not only let us know that we should be moving from a government standpoint, but we've also strengthened significantly all our security protocols within our distribution centers. So taking temperature at entry and exit, organizing separate groups for picking and packing. And when we see at the level of infections in Mercado Libre, it's actually quite low. And that's because of the processes that we have um, in place. Um, Also, I want to highlight that in this sense, I think COVID caught us at a perfect time, given the investments we have done in logistics or the past three years. So unlike what happened to Amazon, we really did not have to put any restrictions on categories to be stored in our distribution centers. And then, um, like I I briefly mentioned, I think the other thing that has happened more shorter term is um, some of the organizational focus has been uh, on certain categories, like consumer packaged goods, given the pent-up demand of the category. And though it's still single digits of our gross merchandise volume, which would be the equivalent of the sales of a retailer. We're a commission-based business, so we make a percentage of the gross merchandise volume. But uh, CPG is still single digits of gross merchandise volume, but th- growing triple digits. So, so I think, you know, that's some of the, uh, the, the, the learnings and how we've moved a little bit the business as a consequence of the pandemic.
3: So each of us, um, we're in different country. Well, Danny and I are in different coasts. Uh, we're in different countries, and I especially feel like I'm far from Latin America right now. Maybe it's because I'm held down in my own room and I've been here for quite a while. But I'm so this is a question, Federico, about just overall adoption of e commerce in Latin America. Yeah. It's something I don't feel equipped to judge because I'm not there. I don't know what it's like. I don't know the differences between Buenos Aires and. Um, Mexico City, um, you know, I don't know the different countries and, and what the states of adoption are. So could you give us a sense of the overall total addressable market that you see and, and where you are in the journey? Okay, so let me break down um,
4: where we are. First of all, first the addressable markets, separate for payments and commerce, and then I'll tackle um, around um, what we're doing in that respect. But so, directionally, for Mercado Diva and Mercado Pago, we look at a region according to the World Bank that has approximately 640 million people, of which, of which, roughly 362 million and growing are internet users, and roughly um, 250 million are online buyers. During 2019, we had about 40 million unique buyers. Uh, So 20 years out, we're not even close to what the addressable market could possibly be, not only in terms of people engaging with our platform, but when you look at the purchase frequency of Meli relative to some of our American counterparties, let alone the Asian ones, there's about 10 purchases per user per year on Meli. I think that's like three or four X in the U.S. and that is like almost seven or eight X in Asia. So on the commerce business, I would say even 20 years out, it's still early days and I think we are incredibly optimistic about the opportunity ahead of us. On Pago, I think uh, is, is is the same population, but what we see is that roughly half of the population is either unbanked or underbanked and, wh- and there's like Approximately 80% of smartphone penetration. So there's more people with this than bank accounts. So we can actually arm them with our payment services and the phone and begin to bank them. But the, also, the other important data point is that when you look at the percent or the amount of transactions that occur in Latin America with paper money, it's still about three quarters. So we see a huge opportunity there to move some of those transactions that today occur in cash more into um, our digital mobile wallet and our payments ecosystem.
3: Really well broken down, thank you very much. It is interesting just to think about The different states and stages of e-commerce, and it seems like it kind of goes from east to west. The east has adopted it massively and used it. Most of all, those of us in North America feel as if we're, you know, keeping up. And then we look at South America and we see that there's still so much opportunity for growth and penetration. Definitely. And I think, look, what's happened,
4: and it's interesting to to comment a little bit, I think we believe that we are going to overcome this period of health crisis being more mature and stronger as a company, um, understanding better the benefits of buying online, but also um, from different angles, from the depth of assortment, A, but also from the health and safety and convenience of of buying online. But just to throw a few numbers, but I think if you look at, at, and that's probably a good indication of what lies ahead, but if we look at the period from, for example, February 24th to May 5th, the amount of new consumers who enter our platform grew exponentially. There were 5 million in that period alone. That's a 45% growth um, uh, year over year. And it, it's quite an expressive data point. If I told you that in 2019, we had, for the full year, for, uh, about 40 million um, users in our platform, OK? Um, we have a presentation that we actually facilitate in our website that has a whole bunch of insights. But the other important thing I think it's important to highlight in this point is that our expectation is that these new entrants, both the buyers and the sellers, sellers um, will, for the most part, have satisfactory experiences when using our technology. Um, And so so even um, e-commerce being today 6%, roughly, probably higher as a result of the pandemic, um, when we look at e-commerce where penetration will be even after physical retail opens. We don't think it's going to recede too much from the incremental penetration that we've seen in some countries as high as 16%. Um, Physical retail will happen again, but I don't think e-commerce will regress too much. And I think the focus of our organization in that sense is making sure that to you as a buyer, you are getting the best possible user experience because that is the best guarantee that when you try to move back offline, you will leave some of your purchases online because you got it fast, because you got it cheap, and because it's free shipping for you.
1: Up next, Andy Cross and Jason Moser are back with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. I'm lost in the supermarket. I can no longer shop happily. I came in here for a special update. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Guys, one more news item before we get to radar stocks. This week, Disney announced major changes to its movie release calendar, planned sequels for the Avatar and Star Wars franchises have been pushed back a full year, and the release of the live-action version of Mulan, which had been slated for August 21st, has been delayed indefinitely. Andy, I'll just start with you. It's really starting to get bad for the movie theaters.
2: Yeah, Netflix touched a little bit on this As they said it's just been slow to kind of come back on board uh, with the production side. Um, concerns there now with COVID cases kind of ramping back up again. I think some concerns long-term about what that might mean for the production of, of continued production of, of movies and entertainment. Uh, this was pretty massive. I mean, they, they changed a lot of different schedules. Mulan has had a lot of problems, I think, over the past uh, couple years with production release schedules. So, you know, just more evidence of the challenges with these big budget releases that these companies are so concerned about.
1: Yeah, and Jason, obviously Disney had planned to release Hamilton into theaters in the fall of 2021 and just decided, you know what, we're just going to put that up on Disney+. I actually don't think they can do that with every movie they have. I mean, they really need to figure out a way to get some of these big action movies on the big screen. They may be, I mean I
0: I, I I do agree with you. I mean, in certain cases, that is a more enjoyable experience. I mean, I think you just have to kind of look at the conditions on the ground and try to ascertain how much of that do we go back to that we could certainly debate. One thing I don't think you can debate is is it's a it's a really great time for Disney to have that Disney plus platform now. like that, really saves them from a lot of hemming and hawing that they, that they might be uh, you know might be undertaking here otherwise. So uh, I mean it, it could it could be worse. I'm sure management probably remembers that at the conclusion of every meeting.
1: <laughs> Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man Dan Boyd's gonna hit you with a question. Andy cross, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
0: Dan, I'm
2: looking at Equinix, a real estate investment trust that operates more than 200 data centers around the world for, I think, more than 3,000 customers coming off its second best first quarter of all time, where peak traffic was up 44%. So this is a company that provides these big data centers. Companies rely on them to maybe to, to move network traffic, internet traffic around. Of course, as we've been spending more and more time connected to our devices and all of Internet of Things, internet traffic more and more important. $65 billion market cap. Stocks in very well. Nice little 1.4% yield. Um, generates $1.3 billion in, in, in funds from operation, cash flow for the company, 25% of revenues. Stocks up very nicely. So, I'm looking for a little bit of a pullback before I go shopping on Equinix.
1: Dan, question about Equinix? Not so much of a question,
0: Chris, merely an observation. I think I have the hardest job on this radio show because I have to attempt to make jokes out of Equinix
1: as a radar (laughs) stock. You know, you could could ask an actual investing question if you wanted. Yeah, well, not not right now. Jason Moser, what are you looking at this week?
0: Oh, man. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot about alcohol on this show. So, not to be mistaken or confused with Jose Cuervo, my company is Corvo, Dan, Corvo, ticker Q-R-V-O. And uh, Corvo is a market leader in radio frequency solutions and semiconductor technology. So, in simplest terms, it's a chip company. But as we roll out into 5G, uh, Corvo is a company that is – Focused uh, in, in in you know particular on this ultra wideband uh, product, which is basically responsible for sending lots of data over short areas with low power. Um, so a big opportunity for them there. It has has a lot of great properties that uh, make it a you know a preferable technology. And, and so Corvo is uh, you know feeling a lot of tailwinds from the benefits of five G and a neat business. Uh, really really digging into this one. Dan, question about Corvo? Yeah, so. Uh, You know, Jason mentioned Jose Cuervo at the top of this, and Corvo with a Q here, and I believe the ticker is Q R V O. Uh, That's that's quite the name, Uh, Jason. Do you think that they could have come up with something better? You know, I guess they could have, but it really is memorable. And, you know, it's like Chris and I were talking about Taylor Brands, and their ticker T-L-R-D just makes you think, like, what in the world? Why weren't they going for something just like suit, S-U-I-T? I I think Corvo struck gold
1: here, man. It's a memorable name. What do you want to add to your watch list, Dan?
0: I'm going to go with Equinix just because
1: I think the name's better. (laughs) All right, guys, thanks for being here. We're out of time. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.